for three weeks now, if you have been around, the Apostle Paul's been talking about a Jesus who's worth suffering for. For three weeks now, the Apostle Paul's been talking about a Jesus who's radically reoriented his ambition in life. For three weeks now, the Apostle Paul has been talking about a Jesus who gives him reason to live and courage to die. But up to this point, the Apostle Paul hasn't exactly taken it upon himself to describe this Jesus in great detail, has he? Until now. This morning, we finally get an eyeful of this Jesus who's captured the heart of the Apostle Paul. This morning, we finally get an eyeful of this Jesus whom the Apostle Paul believes is worth living and dying for. This morning, we get an eyeful of this Jesus whom the Apostle Paul believes is the most supremely valuable being in all of the universe. We finally get to see this Jesus whom the Apostle Paul has been seeing and savoring for all of chapter one. I've been chomping at the bit for three weeks now because I've been telling you about this Jesus that Paul's seen and yet I know that it's not until chapter two that we actually get to look at him in all of his glory, but we get to do that this morning. And so this should be really fun. Beginning in verse one, Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul is clearly, clearly out to champion unity among the brothers and sisters in the city of Philippi. He says, the same mind, the same love in full accord of one mind. And and the basis of this argument for unity is the work of the gospel in these people's lives. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ. In other words, if you know something of the encouragement that comes in knowing Jesus and being known by Jesus. If there is any comfort from love. In other words, if you've experienced, experienced the comforting nature of the love of Christ if you've experienced the comforting nature of the love of the church. He says that there's any participation in the Spirit. In other words, if you know something of the intimate fellowship that comes in knowing the Holy Spirit, if you know something of the fellowship of the Spirit fostered among the saints, if there's any affection or sympathy, in other words, if you know something of Jesus' deep love for you, if you know something of his sympathy, of his mercy toward you, If you know anything of these blessings of the gospel, Paul says, then be unified for the sake of that very gospel. It's not really an if in the sense of uh, Paul wondering if they may or may not know something of these blessings. He knows that, that the saints in Philippi have been changed by the gospel. What he's saying is if this is true, and I know it's true of you, then in light of these blessings, pursue unity. Pursue the way of sacrificial love. And he goes so far as to say that to do so is to complete his joy. Now that might sound absurd to some of you guys, but it makes perfect sense to me. A pastor's well-being is affected by whether or not the church is united or divided. It's true. The more unified a church under the banner of the gospel, the happier the pastor. And so in that sense, I am preaching this sermon for the sake of my own well-being this morning. All right? Paul's after the unity of the church. And just in case it's not clear enough in verses 1 and 2, he goes on to further unpack what he means in verses 3 and 4. He says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. 
but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That word conceit can be translated as vain glory. In other words, don't be a glory thief, Paul's saying. Don't live your life, especially among your Christian brothers and sisters, clawing to be the main attraction. It goes back to earlier in the series when I said that we all need to experience a Copernican revolution to grab hold of the reality that the world does not revolve around us. Rather, Jesus Christ is the center of all of this. And we exist not to be the sun, but to be the moon, to reflect his glory, to point other people to the main attraction. And and that when you let go of clawing after the empty chase of self-exaltation, there's great joy in that freedom of forgetting yourself. We have to ask ourselves, in light of this morning's passage, a few questions. Am I competing for the approval and attention of other people? Is it hard for me to find joy in the success of others? Do I think I'm better than other people? Am I concerned with the needs of others? It's really easy to view oneself as the answer to all the church's problems. It's not so easy to be a servant a foot washer in every room that you enter. To have the humility to to declare, I I think I have the least to offer, but I really want to offer myself most. And for that offering to be a response to having humbly asked the right questions to get down to the heart of the need. It's relatively easy to create the next big thing on the calendar. It's difficult and messy to ask other people, how can I come alongside of you for the sake of the gospel, to fight the good fight of faith alongside of you, or to point people to Jesus who don't yet know him. That's messy. That posture just might lead to a very costly personal investment in a brother or sister's life, uh, life. or someone who doesn't at all know Jesus. It can be even messier at times. Only the gospel can compel a person to that, which is why Paul puts this glorious gospel on display this morning. What follows in this morning's passage, verses 5 through 11, is one of the earliest creeds of the Christian church, one of the earliest confessions. Some would even call it a hymn of the early Christian church. The basis for Paul's command to humble, loving, others-focused servanthood is our servant, Savior, Jesus. And so he goes on to say this, reading the remainder of the passage, beginning in verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Welcome to Christology 101, church, all right? The, The glorious confession of the early church that you find in these verses in a very poetic way includes all of the following. It includes the doctrine of Jesus' pre-existence before the foundations of the world. In other words, his eternal deity. It includes the doctrine of the incarnation, Jesus becoming flesh and dwelling among us. It includes the doctrine of Jesus' active obedience, Jesus living the life that we could never live on our behalf. 
It includes the doctrine of Jesus' passive obedience, his humiliating death by crucifixion and absorption of God's wrath on our behalf. And it includes the doctrine of Jesus' victorious resurrection and ascension as triumphant, exalted king. You ready to go? You start to see how these verses could function as a confession of the early church, a creed of the early church. You have all the major elements of Christology, the study of the deep, uh, the deep study of the person and work of Jesus. First, you have the doctrine of Jesus' preexistence. Paul says he was in the form of God. What Paul's saying, going back to the Christmas season, is that Jesus existed long before the manger scene in Bethlehem. The word form means the true shape, the true nature of something. It means to possess all of the, the characteristics, the attributes, the qualities of something. In other words, Paul's saying being in very nature God. Or as the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus was around long before the manger scene in Bethlehem. He is eternal God. John says it this way in the first chapter of his gospel account. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. The word that John is referring to is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus was around before the foundations of the world. He's the author of all of this. When you look around, he's writing the story. Eternal, timeless, self-existent, self-sufficient, dependent on nothing. That's Jesus. Involved in this eternal intra-Trinitarian dance with God the Father and God the Spirit since before time began, you could say. This Jesus, Paul tells us, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The word grasped in the original Greek carries with it this idea of taking advantage of or exploiting. That rather than exploit or take advantage of his kingly glory, he set aside the scepter and the crown and entered the narrative by way of the humble trappings of a smelly stable as an act of sacrificial love, that rather than exploit his divine rule, his divine reign, he leveraged it into an act of humility for your sake and for mine. Paul says, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What in the world does that mean? He emptied himself. Does that mean that he temporarily gave up his divine attributes during his earthly life, that he became less than God? Well, if so, how do you How do you explain the calming of the stormy sea with nothing more than his voice? Or the multiplying of fish and bread? Or the turning of water into wine? Or the the giving of sight to the blind? Or the walking on water? Or the raising of the dead? The, The incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh, is not an act of subtraction. Critical that we grab hold of this. It's an act of addition. Jesus added a second nature, a human nature, to his divine nature. As the early church father, Gregory of Nazianzus, once said, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. This is where we get what theologians refer to as the doctrine of the hypostatic union, the joining of the divine and the human in the one person of Jesus Christ. In response to a number of heretical views regarding the nature of Christ, some brothers got together in the 5th century, about 500 bishops, 
Would have loved to have been there for that one. And established the following creed. It's known as the Chalcedonian Creed of 451 A.D., I'm going to put this up on the screen. I don't expect all of us to grab hold of every intricate word and its meaning, but I just think there's something about reading through a passage like the one we're reading through this morning and seeing what the church has affirmed for a couple thousand years. So here's how it goes. The Chalcedonian Creed of 451 AD says this, Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood, like us in all respects apart from sin, as regards his Godhead begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer. goes on to say, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence not as parted or separated into two persons, but one in the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. Even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us and the creed of the fathers is handed down to us. That's beautiful. Jesus added humanity to his divinity, fully God and fully man, the God-man. If that's true then what is Paul talking about when he uses the language of Jesus emptying himself? That sounds like subtraction to most human beings, right? What Paul means is that Jesus set aside the privilege of divine glory. He set aside his right to kingly glory in order to take on the form of a servant. As 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That the king took on the form of a peasant as an act of sacrificial love. But, but he didn't just take on flesh in order to uh, wash a few feet and show us the way of love. There was, there was more to this entrance of the author into his own story. Paul goes on to say in verse 8 of this morning's passage, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now we see why Jesus clothed himself in flesh. You you can't die in the place of sinners if you don't have a killable body. Jesus was born to die. We'll we'll get there in just a moment, but let's not jump the gun because one detail that can easily get overlooked in verse 8 is this. Jesus didn't just come to die the death that we deserve to die. He also came to live the life that we could never live leading up to his death by crucifixion. He became obedient, Paul says in verse 8, all the way to Golgotha. It's the double truth of the gospel, as theologians have long referred to it. This is where it's so critical for us to understand that the gospel is more than Jesus died for my sins. Eternal life comes at a price. You can't stand in the presence of a holy God without presenting a perfect holiness to him. We need a hero who will not only die in the place of sinners, 
but will gift them his perfect righteous record so that they can stand before God in all of his glory one day and enjoy him. Jonathan Edwards once said it this way. He said, we are accepted and approved of God as the heirs of salvation, not out of regard to the excellency of our own virtue or goodness or any moral fitness therein, but only on account of the dignity and moral fitness of Christ's righteousness. Or as Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a trade. Uh, Martin Luther calls it the great exchange. Jesus gets my sin and I get his righteousness. Worst deal in, in human history for Jesus. Best deal in the world for us. The gospel is just as much about Jesus living the perfect righteous life that we could never live as it is about him dying the sinner's death that we deserve to die. When you read the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every time you see Jesus obeying perfectly, you're meant to rejoice in that too. Just as much as his crucifixion. Because that was for you. He lived the life that you could never live and he gifts that righteous record to you by grace. Now back to his death. You can't die in the place of sinners if you don't have a killable body. And Jesus was born to die. And not just any death, a humiliating death by crucifixion. Let let me say this because I think this is critical, especially in the Bible Belt. You cannot make the gospel hip. You cannot make the gospel cool. Because at some point you have to declare the slaughtering of the Son of God. You get that, right? You have to mention the crucified Jesus, the horrific suffering and death that he endured on a mission to save sinners. Crucifixion, let me just just talk about it for a second. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians about 500 years before Jesus came onto the scene. It was perfected by the Romans. Crucifixion was not outlawed until the rule of the Emperor Constantine around the 4th century A.D., Crucifixion was considered the most horrific of deaths, usually reserved for the the lowest class, um, particularly slaves in that day. The Roman philosopher Cicero asked that uh, decent Roman citizens not speak of the cross because it was too disgraceful a subject for the ears of decent people. The symbol of the cross in our day has become the most popular symbol of all. People adorn their necks with crosses, their homes with crosses. Lenny Bruce, an American satirist, recently made this statement. If Jesus had been killed 20 years ago, Catholic school children would be wearing little electric chairs around their necks instead of crosses. It's a, it's a, a sufferer's death. We know that before Jesus went to the cross, he sweated drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a medical condition known as hematidrosis where a severe anxiety causes the release of chemicals that break down capillaries in the sweat glands, causing a person to sweat blood. That really happens. This condition would cause the skin to become more sensitive and fragile uh, so that leading to Jesus' flogging, he would have experienced a heightened sense of pain. The flogging itself usually consisted of roughly 39 lashes. The weapon of choice was a cat of nine tails, a whip made of braided strands of leather. With each strand were included metal balls that would bruise or tenderize the skin like you tenderize a steak. At the end of each strand were shards of bone and metal that would rip flesh away from bone. Which is why we're told in Isaiah 52, his appearance was so marred beyond 
human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind would have been unrecognizable in many ways. A crown was pressed into his head. Blood and, and sweat flowed, pouring into, into his eyes, down his face. His hair and beard were most likely a bloody, matted mess. And then there was the hypovolemic shock. Hypo meaning low, emic meaning blood. Hypovolemic shock is a condition in which a person suffers from a large amount of blood loss. The heart tries to, to pump blood that isn't there. The blood pressure drops, causing a person to faint or collapse, which is why we're told in Matthew 27, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene. Simon was his name, and they compelled him to carry Jesus' cross. Jesus couldn't carry it himself. The kidneys stop producing urine to try to maintain fluid in the body. The person becomes very thirsty as the body seeks to replenish fluids, which is why we're told that Jesus was thirsty as he hung on the cross. And then there's the cross itself, the nails. The the Romans used five to seven inch metal spikes, similar to a railroad spike. They were driven through the wrist. To to drive them through the palms wouldn't have worked because they would have ripped the flesh and Jesus would have fallen right off the cross. The wrists were considered part of the hand and the language of that day. So the nails would have been driven right through the wrist, through the median nerve, the largest nerve extending to the hand. That nerve would have been crushed. There was no existing word to describe the pain, so a word had to be created in the human vocabulary. In our language, it's the word excruciating. Ex meaning out of, cruci, crucified, the cross. Literally means out of the cross, the word excruciating. Nails were driven through Jesus' feet in a similar manner. As he hung on the cross, he would have been stretched out so far that both shoulders would have become dislocated which was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. Psalm 22, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Once nailed to the cross, the victim typically would die a slow death by asphyxiation. The chest is essentially forced into an an inhaled position and to exhale, the person must push up his or her feet in order to release tension on the muscles and the diaphragm, which as you can imagine, to do so would would tear the nail that's running through the, the human foot. but also cause the victim to have to run, rub his or her back up against a, a splintered wooden beam. The victim would eventually experience what's known as respiratory acidosis, which means as breathing slows down, carbon dioxide in the blood is dissolved as carbonic acid, causing the acidity of the blood to increase, which leads to an irregular heartbeat, which eventually leads to death. Now, here's the crazy thing. That's not the worst part of the cross. I didn't describe all of that stuff that I just described in great detail in order to awaken you to the physical suffering that Jesus went through. I shared all of that with you so that you would see as we dive into what we're about to dive in, which are the spiritual ramifications of what Jesus experienced on the cross, just how heightened that is in comparison to to the physical so easy to fix our attention on the physical aspect of Jesus' death. And it most certainly matters. Without the physical death of Jesus, we have no hope. Athanasius in his book on the incarnation says this. He says, Jesus accepted death at the hands of men, thereby completely to destroy it in his own body. The physical death of Jesus absolutely matters. But we have to take into account that something more took place on the cross that day. Here's why I believe Jesus sweated drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, 
as he's in that garden, he says this, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That, that, that eternal, intra-Trinitarian dance that we talked about other, uh, earlier, that, that intra-Trinitarian dance with God the Father and God the Spirit for the first time since before time began, Jesus would be separated from that dance. You can just hear Jesus pleading with the Father. It's all I've ever known. All I've ever known is this intra-Trinitarian love relationship with you, Father, with you, Spirit. It's all I've ever known. Which is why it makes sense when he's on the cross that he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That the gospel declares that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs. That he saved us from God's wrath by absorbing the wrath of God in our place. That he saved us from sin's guilt by uh, becoming guilty in our place and giving us his righteous verdict. That he was shamed and defiled so that we might be cleansed from sin. That he became a curse so that we might forever be blessed. That he became separated from the Father so that we might be adopted in as children of the Father. That he became alienated from the Father so that we might be reconciled to God. Very simply put, the gospel is this. Jesus embraced the cross so that we might embrace Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel ultimately is that you get God. He's the gift. At this point, you're meant to say, oh, what condescension. Jesus went from the highest position imaginable to the lowest position imaginable, motivated by, motivated by humble, sacrificial love. That's how much he loves you. You believe that. If you do, it changes everything. You might ask, couldn't Jesus have died a less humiliating, horrific death? Well, not only were there Old Testament prophecies pointing to the coming hero's death by crucifixion so that Jesus dying on a splintered Roman wooden cross was the fulfillment of Scripture in one sense. It was an unwavering declaration that he's the promised hero going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, the one who would crush the serpent's head. He's the one that the entire Old Testament foreshadows. But it was also precisely in, in Conquering such a humiliating death that Jesus is all the more worthy of being exalted. Coming back to Athanasius. If you haven't read this book, you should. It's entitled On the Incarnation. It's a glorious book on what it means, the implications of Jesus taking on flesh. He says this. Jesus accepted and bore upon the cross a death inflicted by others and those others his special enemies. A death which to them was supremely terrible and by no means to be faced. And he did this in order that by destroying even this death, he might himself be believed to be the life and the power of death be recognized as finally annulled. A marvelous and mighty paradox has thus occurred for the death which they thought to inflict on him as dishonor and disgrace has become the glorious monument to death's defeat. It's why you can adorn your neck or your home with a cross, and that not be absurd. The cross, meant to be the symbol of dishonor and disgrace, has become the glorious monument to death's defeat. 
that Jesus didn't stay dead. He victoriously rose from the grave, conquering our greatest enemies of sin and death. Which explains the word therefore in verse 9. Jesus overcame the most humiliating of deaths, namely death by crucifixion. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' humiliation, his condescension is the very basis for his exaltation. The greatest reversal in all of human history. Where Jesus had once gone from the highest position imaginable to the lowest position imaginable, he is now exalted from the lowest position imaginable to the highest position imaginable. C.S. Lewis says it this way in his book entitled Miracles. He says, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity But he goes down to come up again to bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. The crucified Servant now declared the resurrected master, which is what the word Lord means. You just see Paul declaring this in a world where everyone's declaring that Caesar is Lord. Every knee of every created being will bow not before Caesar, but before Jesus. Every tongue of every created being will confess not that Caesar is Lord, but that Jesus is Lord. Some will bend their knee and confess his lordship to their everlasting joy. Others will bend their knee and confess his lordship to their everlasting shame. We know this because verses 10 and 11 of this morning's passage are a reference to Isaiah 45, which says this. God says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. This is what C.S. Lewis means when he says that you've never met a mere mortal. Every person you meet is either in everlasting splendor or an everlasting horror. That those who fail to put their trust in the wrath-absorbing Savior, Jesus Christ, will absorb the wrath of God themselves. That those who fail to put their trust in the guilt-bearing Savior, Jesus Christ, will bear the guilt of their sin themselves. And the ultimate devastation for those who fail to trust in Jesus is the very thing that Jesus considered to be the most devastating, which is separation from God, absent from the eternal dance of joy that will take place in his presence forever. There's a lot at stake in Philippians 2. This morning about 3 o'clock, 3 a.m., my wife woke me up. She got a text. One of our really close friends in college, her brother's a police officer 
down in South Georgia. He was driving to a domestic disturbance call, full speed, siren on, and a semi-truck turned right into his lane, plowing into him, causing the car to flip numerous times before becoming engulfed in flames. He somehow survived that, but then died later in the hospital, leaving behind a wife and two eight-year-old twin girls. I don't know whether he was a Christian or not, but I do know this. If he wasn't a Christian, he experienced the presence of Jesus in a way that I don't want anyone to experience the presence of Jesus. Because there was a declarative, you are Lord, though I did not bend my knee to you in glad submission this side of eternity. And if he is a Christian, he's experiencing an intimacy that I know nothing of yet as it pertains to his union with Jesus. Either way, massive implications of these words that Paul declares in Philippians chapter 2. We say them so flippantly sometimes. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's true. It's more than words. It's reality. There's a lot at stake. If you're not a Christian, I am pleading with you this morning to turn to Jesus and to trust in him for salvation, to confess him for the first time, to be Savior and King, to confess him as your Lord. Every one of us will confess him as Lord one day. May it all be for our everlasting joy and not our everlasting shame. And if you are a Christian, oh my goodness, the mission you have before you to point more people to Jesus. The, the critical reality is you have, to, you have to see him for who he is in Philippians 2 and, and be awakened by that. You have to see him as beautiful, savor him as glorious. One last thing to take note of in verse 11. I love this about Jesus. Notice the pattern of humility that Jesus establishes even in his exaltation. The bowing of every knee and the confessing of every tongue that Jesus is Lord will be to the glory of God the Father. Even in his exaltation, Jesus is glad to see the Father get the glory. This is a Jesus who's captured the heart of the Apostle Paul. This is a Jesus who's freed the Apostle Paul from the empty chase of self-exaltation. This is a Jesus who's given the Apostle Paul meaning in his living and hope in his dying. This is a Jesus who, in seeing and savoring him, has overwhelmed the Apostle Paul with true joy. Let me ask you this morning, is this the Jesus who's captured your heart? Most critical question I could possibly ask this morning. There's so much more that we could say about the person and work of Jesus, both explicit and implicit in this morning's passage. Make no mistake about it. But perhaps the easiest thing to forget in a passage like this is that Paul did not record these words to sure up the theology of the Philippian church. He recorded these verses to sure up the humility, unity, and servant-heartedness of the Philippian church. Going back to verses 1 through 5, if we cognitively understand something more of the person and work of Jesus, but don't walk away compelled to set aside selfish ambition, we've missed it. If we cognitively understand something more of the person and work of Jesus, but don't walk away compelled to humbly serve one another, we've missed it. 
If we cognitively understand something more of the person and work of Jesus, but don't walk away compelled to pursue unity under the banner of the gospel, we've missed it. This picture of Jesus is meant to stir our hearts in such a way that humility becomes more appealing than vain glory. This picture of Jesus is meant to stir our hearts in a way that unity becomes more appealing than divisiveness in the church. This picture of Jesus is meant to stir our hearts in a way that sacrificing for the good of others becomes more appealing than advancing our own ambitions in life. Frank Thielman, in his commentary, says it this way. He says, in our mutual relations, Paul says that the hallmark of our lives should be giving rather than getting, service rather than being served, obedience rather than dominance. Most often, this is a matter not of choosing whether to build a new church building or of designing an evangelism strategy, but of acting in loving ways hour by hour toward parents, spouses, children, co-workers, friends, and fellow church members in the hundreds of ways in which our lives touch the lives of others. Every week, Paul says, we are to have the attitude of Christ Jesus. Yet one more reason why we're not the over-programmed church. We want to give this room to breathe. We want you to look around and see that you have dozens of opportunities to love and serve other people around you. In any given moment, you have dozens of opportunities to pursue unity, to link your arms with other people for the sake of the advancement of the gospel, both in their lives and in the lives of those who don't know Jesus. And that every one of those opportunities to love, to serve, to unite is is very unique. It's very form-fitted. And so I would invite you this morning to, to just look around. As you get up out of your chair, as this service ends, In just a few minutes, look around and see who God's brought into your life in his providence. And ask the question, God, who are you calling me to humbly and sacrificially love and serve at this juncture of my life? Who are you intertwining my path with? Who who are you maybe calling me to pursue unity with? That that I've got this sort of friction, this tension with that needs to be worked through. So that we we might put on display this Jesus uh, more clearly for a watching world. As we receive communion this morning, I invite you alongside of me to soak in the, in the beautiful gospel that says this, Jesus died for all of our self-absorption. That's good news. Jesus died for all of our glory thieving. Jesus died for all of those moments that we fail to serve God and others well. And Jesus died for the residual spirit of divisiveness that's within every one of us in this room. Isn't that good news? We have an opportunity this morning to rejoice in the cross of Jesus Christ. To rejoice that that the king of unparalleled glory, going back to verses 9 through 11, that king knows you. He knows you by name and he loves you deeply. That's unreal, people. He loves you so much that he set aside the privilege of divine glory in order to die a sinner's death in your place. May that compel every one of us to unity. May that compel every one of us to embrace humility. May that compel every one of us in this room to leverage our lives for the glory of Christ and the good of one another and those who don't know Jesus.